0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hopefully you have a handout. We're uh, a little light today. Uh, so maybe share with your neighbor if you don't got one. Uh, let's let's start by uh, taking a look at First Corinthians chapter two. Corinthians chapter 2. Oh. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ and let's pray our Father in heaven we're thankful for the the gathered people of God we do ask that you would bless this time bless our efforts help us to come to A little better understanding of your uh, word of truth that you have given to us and how we ought to completely and wholeheartedly trust in it as your word to us. We do thank you for it. We thank that you've given us your word, uh, instructing us in, in righteousness and how to walk uprightly before you and glorify you. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this church. And we ask again that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week uh, was the theme of truth. Uh, Our God is truth, truthful in all his dealings toward us. And so we're going to continue that a little bit this week, uh, looking at the word of truth. Uh, Three main sections today. First, we'll take a brief look at uh, a Ministries survey. On truth and the Bible second we'll look at paragraphs four and five of the 1689 London Baptist confession I'm going to focus mostly on self-authentication of the scriptures or self-attesting nature of the scriptures and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit and then last uh, look at a, a warning against a natural and spiritless religion uh, that I took from uh, Wilhelmus a So first off, a survey on how the Bible is esteemed currently in evangelicalism and uh, unbelievers in the US. So every two years, Ligonier Ministries takes the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. And below these are the results of the survey for the section on truth. So they have a survey question and uh, their, their preliminary thoughts are embracing the reality of objective truth as necessary to a right and proper understanding of the world. Scripture affirms that God is truth, and because the Bible is his word, Scripture is truth as well. Despite the testimony of Scripture, evangelicals increasingly believe that the Bible is not literally true. So the statement that they put forward in the survey is, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And so you can see in those two columns there, the progressive nature of believing that statement, a 9% increase from 2016 to 22 for evangelicals, and similarly a 9% increase over those six years as well. So uh, troubling. Uh, Two brief comments. First, uh, this is evil. It's evil and sinful to disparage the, word, disparage the word of God, make light of it, regard it as myth and not true. Uh, this is to call God a liar. And second, this is, of course, sad. It's sad that a quarter of evangelicals do not esteem sacred scripture as they ought. So how ought we to esteem the Bible? Well, succinctly, completely trustworthy and authoritative So we got uh, a quote here from Gleason Archer. Uh, It's an introduction uh, to his Dictionary of Bible Difficulties. He's got several recommended procedures in dealing with Bible difficulties, and this is one of them. And he suggests that we avoid the fallacy of shifting from one a priori to its opposite every time an apparent problem arises. The Bible is either the inerrant word of God, or else it is an imperfect record by fallen men. Once we have come into agreement with Jesus that the scripture is completely trustworthy and authoritative, then it is out of the question for us to shift over to the opposite assumption that the Bible is only the errant record of fallible men as they wrote about God. If the Bible is truly the word of God, as Jesus said, then it must be treated with respect, trust, and complete obedience. Unlike all other books known to man, the scriptures come to us from God and in them we confront the ever-living, ever-present God. When we are unable to understand God's ways or unable to comprehend his words, we must bow before him in humility and patiently wait for him to clear up the difficulty or to deliver us from our trials as he sees fit. There's very little that God will long withhold from the surrendered heart and mind of a true believer. So that by way of introduction, and on to the word of the Lord endures forever. So you can see in the survey, kind of dismal. We live in a time when the word of God is not valued as it ought to be. And we live in a time when the meanings of words can change overnight. Online dictionaries don't even need to republish print editions. They can simply change the definitions to suit the needs of the changing social and political climate. And so contrast that with what we read in Isaiah and Matthew here. Isaiah 40, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So our conviction is, and the fact of the matter is, the word of the Lord endures forever. Again, this morning we're looking at God's word of truth, God's word to us, the holy scriptures. God's spoken to his people at many times and in many ways throughout church history. God spoke to Adam, Abraham, Noah, the prophets, the apostles, and many others. God's used burning bushes, a donkey, visions, dreams, his voice, Urim and Thummim, Theophany, prophecy, miracle, and to all of us in these last days, his written word. So let's look at some verses to see what scripture has to say about itself, what it says about its power and its characteristics. So, this first uh, brief header we've got word of truth, word is truth, and word of God. James 1, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Second Timothy 2. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Psalm 119. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. First, the, First Thessalonians 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And Exodus 32 Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. All right, so on to the confession. Uh, We got a brief introduction, paragraph one, and then paragraph four and five in their entirety. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, therefore it is to be received, because it is the word of God." We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire per- perfections thereof. These are all arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So there's a lot going on here in uh, paragraphs four and five. Uh, paragraph four on the divine authority of holy scripture and paragraph five on uh, our persuasion and assurance of the divine origin of holy scripture. So today I'm mostly going to again as I mentioned earlier focus on self-authentication or self-attesting nature of scripture and uh, coupled with the internal witness of the holy spirit. Uh, So before we dive into that why is it important that our conviction ultimately rests on the work of the holy spirit why is it important to believe that the bible is to be received because it is the word of god and that our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the holy spirit bearing witness by and with our work, the word in our hearts Uh, Why is it important that we can say with confidence that we must believe and obey the Bible because God wrote it, and we believe that God wrote it because the Bible says so? So Why is this all important? The gospel is for everyone, from the scholar with PhDs to the tribesman with no written language. The gospel is for everyone, and the word of God for everyone. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. So our confidence that the Bible is true, infallible, inerrant— Ought not rest ultimately in smart men in work of his, or the work of historians and scholars. Our confidence must rest in God that his word to us is true, and this because of the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. We need not be knowledgeable or experts in textual criticism, Pentateuch and gospel harmonization, church history, bibliology, Greek, Hebrew, philosophical and theological syllogisms, The list could go on and on before we to believe God has given us the Holy Scriptures infallible, inerrant, and 100% trustworthy. A childlike faith, because the Bible tells me so, will ultimately suffice. All right. So uh, with that little introduction there uh, from the the chapter 4 and 5 of the Confession. So to the law and to the testimony. Here are the scripture proofs for paragraph 4. Second Peter, 2 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 John. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. So Holy Scripture is not the product of man. It is God's word to us. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And the emphasis here would be all Scripture, not just some of it is profitable. All of it is God-breathed, infallible, and errant. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so the apostle proclaimed the word of God, and it was accepted as the word of God. And last here, 1 John 5, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Again, here John is telling the readers, this is the testimony of God. This is what God said. All right, so positively stated, what is the self-authentication of scripture? So J.V. Fesco here in an article, he summarized it fairly succinctly here. The scriptures bear witness about themselves in various ways that they are the true word of God. And the Holy Spirit efficaciously applies this witness to give the Christian confidence in the written word of God. And here Jim Renehan in his exposition of the confession. The confession asserts that the authority is derived from authorship. Because the scriptures are breathed out by God, they take on the characteristic of God. He is truth. And as Warfield says, because inspired scripture is the word of God, And because the word of God, it exercises lawful authority over the thoughts and acts of men. So onto chapter five expresses these several evidences of divine authorship of the Bible to the believer, which are persuasive. Though keying on the last thought of chapter five, again, we see the ultimate ground of our full uh, persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So this following section at length is from uh, Clark has called it out. It's an exposition of a new exposition of the London Baptist Confession uh, edited by uh, Rob Ventura. This witness of the spirit is personal and internal. It is in the heart of the Christian. It is the moving of the spirit in us through his indwelling. But notice that it is not from one's own experience nor from one's own mind. It is specifically by and with the word it is only by reading study and meditation upon the word of god that the holy spirit bears witness in our hearts and warfield spoke of the personal element in the bible's witness to us we must however turn to note another general characteristic of scripture the remarkable simplicity of its manner and the transparent honesty of its tone so that its words even when describing the most utter marvels possess that calm quiet ring which stamps them with indubitable truthfulness. If we are asked why we trust a friend in whom we have every confidence and credit his every statement, we may be somewhat at a loss for a definite answer. We know him, we may say. This same evidence is good also for a book. We may judge of the truthfulness of men's writings by all these little intangible characteristics which men united go toward making a very strong impression of actual proof but which, one by one, are almost too small to adduce or even notice, just as we may judge of the trustiness of men's characters by all the innumerable looks, gestures, chance expressions, little circumstances which make their due impression on us. Combined, they are convincing, though each by itself might seem ambiguous or valueless. The conclusion in each case, however, valid and rational, and the evidence is unmistakably good evidence. Now... For the Bible, this is evidence is unusually strong. So, again, uh, the scripture proofs that are put forward in the confession uh, John 16 When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And 1 Corinthians 2, which we read at length earlier, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And lastly here, 1 John 2, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this, this last section here is uh, called it an Apology. So these quotes address the circularity of what has been said about believing that the Bible is God's word because God's word says it is God's word. You know, obviously you can all see the circularity there, and I found these three uh, quite helpful. Uh, The first uh, from uh, Joel and Paul, their Reform Systematic Theology. One might object that this is a circular argument. We know that the Bible is God's word because it is God's word. We answer this objection by noting that all arguments for an ultimate authority must be circular because one can appeal to nothing higher. Furthermore, it is irrational to recognize supreme authority in any other or less than God and what God has said. For those whose eyes are opened, the Bible's authority is no blind leap of faith but as plain a fact to them as knowing that the sun shines. Calvin said, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. For this reason, philosophical and evidential arguments are not necessary for faith, though they absolutely can be helpful in answering enemies of the faith. For the least educated person illuminated by the Spirit can see the glory and authority of God in his word. And this next section from Herman, one of my favorites. First principles are certain of themselves. The truth of a fundamental principle cannot be proved. It can only be recognized. A first principle is believed on its own account, not on account of something else. Fundamental principles cannot have a first principle, neither ought they to be sought. Scripture itself clearly teaches accordingly that not the church, but the word of God, written or unwritten, is trustworthy in and of itself. And lastly on this, G.I. Williamson, he's got a helpful uh, study class uh, style book on the Westminster Confession. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the Bible cannot possibly be proved to be God's word by anything external to God himself. This does not mean that the testimony of the church is useless. A guide who points out various masterpieces in an art gallery is of use. He does not make doubtful paintings into masterpieces. He does not even prove masterpieces to be such, but he may be the instrument by which we are brought to see the intrinsic qualities which make them to be masterpieces. So the church may point out that the Bible is the word of God, but this is possible only because it is God's word because it already displays everywhere within itself the excellencies which belong to word divinity. So this last uh, last part and closing here, this is taken from The Christian's Reasonable Service by Wilhelmus Sabrackle. Uh, it was first published in 1700. The title of the chapter is, It is a Warning exhortation against pietist quietists and all who in a similar manner have deviated to a natural and spiritless religion under the guise of spirituality. Uh, there was a time when they were notorious for long titles. Uh, without going into the, uh, the details of the you know the, the false teaching they was dealing with at the time he puts forward here, I shall state and defend some propositions whereby the errors will be evident and whereby a believer holding fast to those truths, will be delivered from their temptations. So this is the first of the several propositions, and I found it helpful in considering the topic of the word of truth these past few weeks and preparing for these lessons. So here's Wilhelmus, a warning against a natural and spiritless religion. A Christian must have a great love for the truth. All splendid pretense void of love for the truth is deceit. First, the truth is the way of salvation is revealed by God in his word. Whatever God has revealed about himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, regeneration, saving faith, true holiness, and the manner in which God wishes to be served, all that is truth. Thy word is truth. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Secondly, God has given this truth to his one and only church in order to preserve, proclaim, and confess it. The church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Thirdly, the truth is the seed of regeneration. That is, it is the means whereby man is drawn out of darkness into marvelous light. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Uh, Fourth, The truth is the only means whereby saving faith is to be obtained. Saving faith is the extrinsic exercise of going out of self, of a soul perplexed by sin and judgment, and of a soul who yearns for reconciliation, holiness, and communion with God. It is the going out of the heart after the Lord Jesus, He being the ransom and the righteousness of God. How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, That is the word of faith fifth the truth is the means fountain and rule from which holiness issues forth and according to which it must be regulated holiness is the loving observance of truth that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love May grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Sixthly, God demands from believers that they will do everything in their power to protect the truth and to engage in battle on his behalf, so that nothing of the truth is lost or obscured. A spiritual warrior must himself be girded with the truth. Stand therefore, having having your loins gird about with truth. Being thus armed, he must keep an eye on the truth, not permitting that anyone infringe upon it at any point. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Seventhly, one cannot trifle with the truth. It is too precious a gift from God, and God takes notice of how we deal with it. If you love the truth in a heartfelt and genuine manner, the Lord will give more light. If, however, you are cold, listless, indifferent, and careless toward the truth, you must expect the wrath and judgment of God. Press upon your heart, 2 Thessalonians 2. Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth. Eight and last here. Not only is it contrary to God's will to have fellowship with error, but also with those who espouse error. The church is a garden enclosed. It is separated from all other men whatever religion they may espouse. If heretics arise in our midst, they must be cast out. So closing here, uh, Wilhelmus, how necessary is it to carefully heed this proposition? Compare yourself to this. Do you have such a tender love for the truth? Is it that precious to you? Do you joyfully give thanks to God for it? Do you live according to it? Do you engage in battle on its behalf? Do you indeed abhor all error in those who espouse it? Are you fearful and concerned about associating with such persons? If such is the case with you, then you are not in danger of being misled by the elevated language of pietists, for you will immediately perceive whether they have and promote either the truth or error, and whether they have love for the truth. So hopefully there was something in there that was helpful for you. Uh, This last quote is a good reminder to myself of what happens spiritually when I find that time has passed and I've not been reading uh, scripture or meditating on scripture as I ought. Uh, Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor pastor and missionary in the 1800s. Some of you may have used his uh, Bible reading program. So this is from his diary writing to himself. Somewhat overcome, let me see. There is a creeping defect here. Humble, purpose-like reading of the word omitted. What plant can be unwatered and not wither? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We ask that you would uh, create in us a desire to uh, read your word more, meditate on it, (coughs) Grant us your spirit to understand what we read. Uh, we do thank you for pastors and preachers and this worship service that's coming up. We ask that you would uh, bless us all with understanding, bless the, the preacher with clarity. And we, we do ask that uh, we would worship you in spirit and truth and your your spirit would guide us and that all things would be done uh, for your glory. Thank you for this time, and uh, we ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen.